Welcome to this Federal Society Faculty Book Podcast, discussing Professor Julian Koo and John Yu's new book, Taming Globalization, International Law, the U.S. Constitution, and the New World Order. Thank you for tuning in. Taming Globalization discusses the challenge to American constitutional law that arises out of our increasingly global society. The creation of dozens of international institutions, from the International Court of Justice to Border Commissions to the World Trade Organization, has given rise to a legal network that poses a challenge for American constitutional law. In response to this challenge, Ku and Yu propose that domestic actors make use of mediating devices, such as the non-self-execution of treaties, recognition of the president's authority to interpret international law, and a reliance on state implementation of international law and agreements. These devices, the authors argue, will help us resolve the legal challenges of globalization in a way that minimalizes both constitutional and international difficulties. Julian Koo, a professor at Hofstra University School of Law, is joined by critical commenter Martin Flaherty, the Leitner Family Professor of Law and co-founding director of the Leitner Center for International Law and Justice at Fordham Law School, to discuss the book. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professors Koo and Flaherty. This is Julian Koo. I'm a professor at the Maurice Dean Law School at Hofstra University. We'll be talking today about the book that I recently finished with John Yu called Taming Globalization, International Law, the U.S. Constitution, and the New World Order. And I just want to take a few minutes to briefly summarize the book, so for folks who haven't yet read it, then I'll welcome some conversation with Professor Flaherty. The book has two main sort of parts, but before I get to that, let me sort of talk about where the book came from. It's sort of a distillation of ideas that John, you, and I have been thinking about both independently and together really over the last 10 years, and it reflects a lot of the work that we've done over that time period. And some of it might be described as wrestling with the questions of how U.S. law, and especially U.S. constitutional law, interacts with the international system. And the various ways that this happens, we think about this from the perspective of lawyers and lawyers who are particularly interested in constitutional law. So the way the book came together was to try to combine our interests in international affairs and international relations and how that's affecting the United States generally, but focusing that discussion on on how it impacts the U.S. legal system and in particular the U.S. Constitution. So those are some big themes that we've been working both independently and together over the years. And one thing that we thought was missing to some degree in the maybe public discussion on these issues was this focusing claims about, well, globalization, things are changing, the world's coming closer together, and then a typical reaction with claim on the other side, well, sovereignty, sovereignty is being eroded, we need more sovereignty or less sovereignty, but trying to distill that into more specific issues or analysis of, of legal questions, uh, like, well, how exactly would that affect the United States legal system? Which doctrine would affect that? And the bottom line conclusion we came up with is that uh, the U.S. Constitution does have a lot of mechanisms which can effectively manage globalization, but that the U.S. Constitution needs to be thought of very carefully because the way we interpret the Constitution will also have an impact on how globalization ultimately shapes the future of the U.S. So with that sort of very general introduction in mind, the two parts of the book focus really on two big themes. One is this idea that globalization, which are these sort of uh, exogenous forces out in 
bring the world together in a variety of ways, both bad and good, and not just economically, but also culturally, politically. And we focus on legal impacts, such as the creation of different and new international legal regimes, increased emphasis on international law and institutions, and increased emphasis on using international law and institutions to shape the behavior of nation states, even with respect to domestic affairs. So that's the one big phenomenon that we think is happening out there in the world. And we're not exactly taking a position on this as a bad thing or a good thing, but the argument of the book is that we should, in the United States, take it very seriously and think about how the U.S. legal systems should respond to these kinds of changes in international law and institutions. And this brings us to the main part of the book, which is an argument that with respect to U.S. sovereignty, we really should focus on the Constitution as a way to mediate the impact of international law, international institutions, and globalization. And the three main doctrines we propose under U.S. constitutional law are that treaties should be non-self-executing, or at least presumptively treated as non-self-executing, that the president's role in interpreting international law, both treaty and customary law, should be emphasized and perhaps given an authoritative weight, and that the state governments should have increased autonomy in how to manage the relationship with international law and international institutions. So that's the basic argument of the book, and it tries to pull together thoughts about the international system and uh, U.S. constitutional law. So that gives you the basic introduction. Marty, if you would like to jump in. Great. Well, thanks very much, Julian. And this is Martin Flaherty. I'm a Leitner Family Professor of International Human Rights Law at Fordham Law School and a visiting professor at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton. And let me first say I welcome the opportunity to critique this book. I think this book is an important book. It's a stimulating book. It's a very thorough book. And it's a book asking what I think is really one of the most important questions in law and policy for the 21st century, which is precisely the question about what is and should be the impact of globalization and its various facets on the domestic U.S. legal scheme. And let me say, first of all, that I agree fully with Professors Ku and Yu about the Constitution being the mediating force. And indeed, as a preliminary matter, let me say I further agree with them in that while I think actually a lot of facets of international law, particularly human rights law, is a good thing, and I realize that John and Julian are agnostic about the impact of globalization, one thing that underpins their book is the realization that this is a significant force that must be dealt with. And in an earlier session on this at the American Enterprise Institute, on the other end of the spectrum was Jeremy Rabkin, who was arguing almost a pure sovereignty line, saying that uh, globalization should be resisted at all costs, and that he didn't concede at all the importance or inevitability of modern globalization. And so there, you know, I would say that the posture this book takes is a much more realistic posture about international relations and the necessity for thinking deeply about how the Constitution should mediate that. So my critique really is threefold. One is on method and then just two specific areas of the three that Julian mentioned, although I could even address the third in the back and forth. The first is basically methodological, and it really comes down to a matter of constitutional interpretation. As rigorous as the book is, as rich as it is in citations of case law and other sources of constitutional law, 
I was left unclear with regard to what the consistent method of constitutional interpretation was, which was curious, especially given that Julian's co-author, John Yu, had historically been an advocate of originalism, and that was specifically eschewed in this book. So where I come at these questions is actually in a fairly kind of mundane conservative way, which is that I think that the constitutional law should be interpreted as a matter of text history, including original understandings of the Constitution and structure. And it's with that that I then part company with them on a number of the sort of specific stances that the book takes. So let me mention at least two of the three initially here that Julian put on the table. One is self-execution. Now, they propose that the Constitution be interpreted in such a way that treaties not be treated as self-executing, that is, treaties, once they're ratified, not automatically be considered the supreme law of the land. And my sort of respectful disagreement is that that doesn't jive with either the text or the history of the Supremacy Clause. The Supremacy Clause says quite clearly that the Constitution, statutes, and treaties shall be the supreme law of the land, and it reflected a pretty clear original understanding that treaties should be considered the supreme law of the land. Now, I take it that really what's underpinning their concern are democratic concerns, that really they want Congress to be involved in signing off on any domestic effective treaties. Now, there, I guess I'd have two responses. One is that the supermajority requirement in Senate approval of treaties in part addresses that problem. But then the other thing I would say would be, and I'd be very interested in Julian's reaction to this, if you're worried about the sort of democratic underpinnings of treaties, why not just have everything as a congressional executive agreement? It strikes me that it's actually anti-democratic to have the system that they want. And the system they would want would be a human rights treaty would require the president plus two-thirds of the Senate, which is very hard to get. It gives basically a minority veto to a treaty. And only after it jumps that very high hurdle, then it's got to jump the other hurdle of a majority in both houses. If really what you're worried about is democratic pedigree and you're putting aside the text and the original understanding, it would seem to me that, okay, do what we do with most commercial international agreements and track them all as congressional executive agreements. Congress can vote them up or down and they'll have a democratic pedigree. Right now, the system they have is almost designed to ensure that any treaty, particularly human rights treaties, will never have domestic effect, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. The second thing is presidential deference, or deference by the courts to uh, presidential interpretations of treaties. And again, as a matter of text, but even more so structure, I think that gets things exactly half right. On the one hand, the founders, as reflected in Article Two, were concerned about energy and dispatch in the executive in the conduct of foreign relations. However, they were also greatly concerned, both domestically but in particular with regard to treaty claims, they were concerned with the neutral adjudication of individual rights claims against executive incursions. And that stems right back to one of our most important early treaties, the Treaty of Paris. And so 
It's my view that the founders actually considered whether to defer to the executive or not and rejected it, which is also reflected in our early practice. One scholar, David Sloss, whom we both know, did a study of the Supreme Court's early practice and found that there was actually zero deference to the executive when it came to interpreting treaties on which individuals were basing individual rights claims. And I think that's exactly right. I think that on the one hand, you need the executive for an energetic foreign affairs, but when it comes to international legal standards that are protecting individuals, it's at that point where the courts come in to protect the individual against incursions from either Congress or the president. These are great comments, Marty, and I really do appreciate the chance to just take a first crack at this. So let me give some my own take, which I think I can say roughly reflects what I think we both think. It's a little tricky when you write a book with someone else with whom you don't agree with on everything. That, right, you know, right. Yeah, I've been there, done that too. Little, so. <laughs> <laughs> it sometimes comes across as a little weird. So I don't want to speak for John and everything. I don't think that I'm departing from what we wrote together and, with respect to this. So let me take your three points in order. And the first point on method, it's self-consciously not an originalist argument. So we're trying to avoid the debates over constitutional interpretation. We didn't think that was going to be the proper project for this book. What we want to do was to highlight the ways in which the Constitution and international law interact. And we did want to make legal arguments. We thought that we would be able to move beyond the purely formal argument and move the ball just a little bit. Now, here's how I would deal with the formal argument, at least with respect to self-execution and to treaties. It's not that they're not important, and we don't think that we're departing from text, structure, or method. But I think that what we are suggesting is that there are reasons to, in addition to text structure method, to adopt the approaches we're taking. We think all three of our proposals are actually well-grounded in the text structure of the Constitution, and I think would fit within an originalist claim. But I, I think we both concede that there's a fair criticism from an originalist perspective. So the thought here is to provide a different explanation and perhaps justification for these doctrines that we suggest. So that's why we're self-consciously positioning those doctrines not with their formal justifications, but also with respect to their, what we call functional justifications, like how they would impact with the way the U.S. interacts with international society in general. So just to take an example of that, on self-execution, and this is an area that Marty and my co-author John, you have sort of dealt with on the formal arguments at great length. We made really strong and good arguments. Here's how I would try to dodge that argument a little bit. I think that there is certainly an originalist argument that all treaties must be self-executed. And there's certainly several scholars that we both know who've made this argument. I would take this position that I don't read the originalist position to be that all treaties have to be self-executing. And I think that many scholars have accepted that, or at least some scholars have accepted that. Some treaties can be non-self-executing as well. I mean, that this would also fit within the original understanding. And they might be non-self-executing for a variety of reasons. One might be that the intent of the people who created the treaty, the Senate and the President, was that they would be non-self-executing. So, so part of the argument is that there's a lot of benefits to non-self-execution. If you accept that as a legal matter, there can be non-self-executing treaties, that it's not unconstitutional to have a non-self-executing treaty. Then there might be reasons to argue in favor of a presumption, in favor of them. And the presumption could be something that either courts adopt or the political branches adopt. So one example we cite in the book would be we support and encourage the practice of the Senate of attaching reservations, understandings, and declarations, particularly non-self-executing declarations, 
to treaties that they want to be non-self-executing. And this has been done, as Marty knows, with many of the international human rights treaties. The formal argument we would make is that this is perfectly consistent with the original understanding and permissible. And then the functional argument we make is that this is good because this would allow, for a variety of reasons, the U.S. government to divide international law and separate international law and domestic law and allow Congress and particularly the House of Representatives to decide how to implement and execute these complicated treaties. Now, this brings me to the point that Marty made about Congress and democracy, and maybe we're demanding too much of a, a democratic process by demanding both a statute and a treaty. So two-thirds of the Senate, and then you have to go back to the both houses to get a statute. I would take issue with this argument that this would never happen. Actually, I think this happens quite often with certain kinds of treaties. I agree with him that it's unlikely to happen with certain kinds of very controversial treaties. But actually, this process where you go through treaties and then you go back to the statute, and especially in the area, it's kind of a lost area. Private international law. So just to give one example, the treaty that allows for the enforcement of international commercial arbitration awards was a classic. You had to get two-thirds of the Senate, and then they went back to Congress and got a statute to implement it. And I think everyone thinks it worked out better that way. The statute is the basis for the law. It was not exactly what the treaty might have required, but it made it clear what it meant. And then the House was involved in something that ultimately was very intrusive in the court system, creating the process for enforcing international arbitration awards. So, I mean, I'm just saying I would push back and saying this would never happen. I think there's a lot of advantages to the system is what we argue. It's not just pure democracy, but it's also would allow the different sort of uh, constituencies and houses of Congress to get involved in the process of deciding how to execute a treaty. Um, now, why not just allow um, a congressional executive agreement we don't address that issue in the book. I think we have slightly different views on congressional executive agreements. But I would say that I think it's certainly possible if executive agreements are okay. That you know this would be also consistent with the message. But I think there's too much disagreement on whether everything really can be done through congressional executive agreement to say that this would be okay under our system. I think we would essentially argue that it's probably okay and it would be consistent. But we're not ready to say that all treaties are okay under that system. Now, just let me make one point on the second argument he makes about deference to the president. I think Marty's argument is very strong or stronger on the question of presidential interpretation of treaties with respect to originalism. I think you're right that there's certain evidence that the treaties were intended to be separated out and that they were intended to have neutral adjudication. And I think I would agree with that. I don't think John would disagree with that completely. We would both say that the president was not. His views on treaty interpretation, though, were still quite important for no other reason that he's the one who negotiates the treaty. So he's in a similar position to a legislature and the weight that the legislature's statements would have on that. But I would say that the bulk of our argument is on customary law, which Marty did get a chance to discuss, which is that in particular, so with respect to treaties, we think there's at least some evidence of deference. With respect to customary law, the case is much stronger, we think, that there's a very strong case for customary law, which is not treated under the Constitution supremacy clause in the same way as treaties, given its unusual nature that the president's uh, interpretation and control over the application of customary law should also be given uh, heavy deference in that case. And I agree, there's a formal argument, there's lots of arguments about, about whether this is consistent with the original intent. We think it actually is, but even if it isn't, we think there's good reasons to think today, especially given the expansive nature of international law, that you would want to give the president this type of deference over customary law. Part of it is drawing an insight, and here we're drawing from the New Deal instead of criticizing it, from the rise of the Ministry of State. Why do we give the president so much deference or his agencies so much deference in ministerial regulations, but customary law, which is 
and treaties to a lesser extent are seen as completely separate somehow from that process. So that's how I respond to, I think, Marty's very fair comments. Great. Well, I'm glad we were able to have a change on this that we didn't earlier. I guess I'd, again, come back with a couple of points, and let me just work backwards with the presidential deference. And I guess this would be the soundbite that I used before, but that was misunderstood, which would be, I analogize judicial deference to executive interpretation of treaties, at least treaties that furnish the basis for individual rights claims, I analogize them to the courts deferring or not to a criminal statute, because the usual arguments for deferring to the president with regard to treaties is, well, the executive branch is much better positioned to know about foreign affairs than is the judiciary. The executive branch is expert. It actually goes into some of your New Deal agency references. Although I would point out that just because a certain president negotiates a treaty doesn't mean that the president who is actually interpreting the treaty is the same president. And indeed, there are often radically different interpretations of treaties going from administration to administration. But the long and short of it is institutional expertise is a reason for deference. And my argument is, well, all of that applies to, say, a federal criminal statute on drugs. The war on drugs is something that the executive branch knows a lot more about than the judiciary is. They know about the resources. They know what's effective. They know that a certain interpretation of the statute might be more effective in stopping drugs than another interpretation of the statute. It pretty much all lines up. Yet, when it comes to that particular situation, there is another half of the equation that blocks simple deference to the executive, and it is the role of the judiciary in adjudicating a law that implicates individual rights neutrally against the executive assertion. And my argument is, at least with regard to rights-bearing treaties, it should be no different. That that role of the judiciary, the combination of Article Three roles and the notion of individual rights, trumps or at least neutralizes any argument about executive expertise in this particular area. Look, I don't disagree with that. Let me just point out two things. One, if you accept our first proposal on non-self-execution and implementing it via statute, then I think we're on the same page. Right? Any statute that's right. implemented by Congress, there would no longer be deference that we would demand to the president with respect to a statute that was implementing a treaty. And so therefore, we solve the problem there. Now, pure treaty, a self-executing treaty, which we don't like anyways, but which suppose that exists, the reason I think the expertise issue can't really ever go away is due to the unusual nature of the treaty. A treaty could be rights-bearing, but by its very nature and definition, it does always implicate foreign affairs. There are treaty partners, there are international organizations that might be involved in interpreting it. So I, I agree with you that you're right. There's definitely a strong analogy to a criminal statute, which we would like to actually make it an actual statute. But a, a pure treaty to us, I think, is always going to have that sort of international element out there. So I think you can make an argument for reduced executive deference, but I guess I'm not ready to jump say what's well, completely like a criminal statute. A response that I will ponder, but it does get me to the first point, mm -hmm. which again would be, you know, maybe we might achieve some common ground on the notion of tracking, if not all, at least many human rights treaties as congressional executive agreements. My point, I guess, would be this, that if we are going to depart in any significant way from at least basic understanding of the founding with regard to self-executing treaties and instead worry more about the functional imperatives of democracy, well, one example of where we've done that is actually in trade treaties. 
early in our history, most trade treaties were actual treaties. They were treaties that the president negotiated and two-thirds of the Senate approved. That radically shifted after World War II, and now most trade treaties, like, for example, NAFTA, are tracked by the president as congressional executive agreements requiring only a majority of both houses. So that's an example of shift in custom that one would argue is a departure from the text and original understanding, or at least significant departure. Now, given that departure, then I think one could also say, well, let's also have a departure for other kinds of treaties. And I think if we departed in that way with regard to human rights treaties, it would satisfy the functional concern about uh, democratic pedigree because they would be passed exactly like statutes. I guess my problem with the sort of current position of the book is there's this double hurdle that in one sense, at least the result of the book, is it's very kind of formalist when it comes to human rights treaties in that they have to be tracked as treaties which makes them subject to the veto of one-third plus one of the Senate, which is actually anti-majoritarian. In some ways, that's very anti-democratic. And then, again, there's this additional hurdle of they have to be enacted as statutes. And so maybe we may come to common ground on that. Maybe we won't. But it just seems to me that if you're going to depart from the original intent and text in a significant way, we could disagree about how much. But if you're going to depart from it to begin with, then why not depart from it in terms of tracking human rights treaties along the other track as well, especially when in doing so you're addressing in a more pure and direct way the democratic concerns? Well, let me actually just respond to that. And this is one of those things we both probably should have addressed, executive agreements. We didn't, and I think we just weren't really sure where exactly we end up on this. So I think let me just sort of go on my own path here who disagree that we're really departing from the original understanding. We agree that it's debatable. So I think with respect to congressional executive agreements, look, you're right. I mean, you could imagine the functional arguments for the book would support treating all treaties as congressional executive agreements, or at least human rights treaties as congressional executive agreements. And it would presumably satisfy a lot of the issues that are raised here. And I think you're right that's at least as part of the functional argument. Although we're not making a pure just democracy argument, which I think that's part of the argument of the book. We are self-consciously arguing that there is something about the Constitution that's not just a democracy argument, but it's a sovereignty argument. It's a popular sovereignty argument, which is that the Constitution, and not just sort of pure majority rule, but the Constitution is the the center of of U.S. sovereignty. So the processes of the Constitution should be adhered to as much as possible, even if they're not purely a majoritarian. I think we would say that, so the treaty power at least has that pedigree. If we could somehow dispense with the treaty power, we we don't make that argument here because the treaty power is, I think, a part of the Constitution and therefore part of the sovereign power that we're trying to protect. So we're talking about how to interpret the treaty power. Now, with respect to congressional executive agreements, I suppose that to the extent that those agreements are legitimate, that you can depart from the treaty power. So I think in your view, Marty, you're basically saying, look, if you're going to allow non-self-executing treaties, you might as well allow congressional executive agreements. Both are departures from the pure original understanding. And at least congressional executive agreements have this democratic check. And I think that's probably okay. We don't have a theory as to why congressional executive agreements are okay. (laughs) I think that, or which ones are okay. I would say that to the extent that it really does depart dramatically from the original understanding and people just saying, 
there's no way to ground this in the original understanding. We just do it because we, we think it's better for us. I don't think the book would actually support that. The book would like to tie everything to the Constitution in a very, at least a reasonably legitimate way. Now, just a final note on congressional executive agreements, and here I would say what's one interesting thing about them is that for the most part, they are themselves non-self-executing. For instance, NAFTA is self-consciously almost completely non-self-executing, and Congress made it that way. And the same thing with the World Trade Organization. So they specifically said, okay, you can't sue the states for violations of NAFTA. You can't sue states for violations of WTO. So maybe if we did think this is okay from congressional executive agreements, we still think that Congress should be allowed to, if they choose, which they did in trade treaties, make those agreements non-self-executing. And we think it actually supports our argument from a functional basis that they're worried, even in the trade context, about unleashing these international agreements into domestic law. Yeah, and I guess, again, my five, which you partially addressed, is, you know, my final kind of word on that would be I need a pretty strong argument for treating NAFTA one way, which is to say if it's okay to track NAFTA as a congressional executive agreement because whatever strictures there were from text and original intent aren't dispositive, but tracking it as a congressional executive agreement does satisfy a sort of grander constitutional imperative of democracy, then I need a pretty strong argument why it's okay to do that with NAFTA, but not okay to do that with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And it could be up to Congress then, as a majoritarian thing, to decide, well, which things can be litigated in domestic court and which not. Because there's parts of NAFTA that actually very much do implicate U.S. sovereignty, the role of arbitration boards and all of that. So the bottom line, again, would be it just seems that the deck is stacked a little too much against a certain type of treaty if it has to jump through these two hurdles, particularly one that seems in some ways very anti-democratic. I mean, if you talk about the Senate veto of a treaty, and some people have run the numbers on this, but if it's one-third plus one of the senators of a quorum can veto a treaty, and you do the math of you know one-third plus one of the senators from the least populous states, we could be talking about senators representing something like 20% of the country could veto a treaty that the rest of the country might arguably be for, and that's hard to justify on any democratic basis. I agree with you. It does seem a little odd. We were not going to go so far as to say we could just completely dump the treaty clause. And I think the treaty clause, for us, is we need to at least ground our arguments in the treaty clause. But we're not taking on whether or not what agreements can avoid the treaty clause. I would just say this to remind you, I mean, it's not just human rights treaties, Marty. There are a lot of treaties that have to undergo this. Oh, right, arms treaties and all of that. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, but as I say, I would really need to see a theory at some point. Maybe this would be a follow-up thing. I need to see a theory, (laughs) right, of why the easier method is okay for commerce but not for things like torture. Right. And perhaps the argument is going to be actually that maybe, because neither of us have taken a view on this, I don't think, which right. is that maybe the answer is actually we, we screwed up with trade treaties. So they should go back to the <laughs> treaty process. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think that at least some trade treaties, I think effectively, you're right, we may never get another trade treaty, though. But at least I'm not sure which way we go on that. We might just go back to the trade treaties and right. say, okay, they have to be like treaties. And I think the theory of trade treaties is that it's just so purely within the Article One congressional power, that's why they can do it. But I suppose you might argue that's the case for human rights treaties as well. But you're right, maybe that's a follow-up point. And that's a very cogent point that we don't address in the book and that we probably should have. And maybe we will in some future piece, at least one of us will. 
well, you can't do everything, and you covered a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I would say that this is a big topic. As I finished it, I was like, oh, I'm all done. I have nothing more to say about this. But in fact, there's a lot of issues that could be raised with respect to these arguments, but also um, other issues that are out there. No, I really do appreciate you raising that point to us. I do think one thing I would just say, I think human rights treaties are really important. I do think we've probably, everyone, both critics and supporters of them, may have gotten too caught up in the human rights treaties. They're really important, but I think we often tend to overlook all the other treaties that are being cranked through the Senate. And there's an argument out there that tax treaties need to be done only through the Article II process, where they have to be implemented. I mean, there's a lot of other treaties that, and we don't go through the detail, and you're right, we don't provide a theory for that here, but it seems like there's more stuff to think about with respect to treaties. Thank you for listening to this Faculty Book Podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.